Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2 today. What we're doing is kind of taking one chapter of Jonah for each week. And right now we find the prophet in the belly of the beast. That sounds ominous, doesn't it? In the belly of the beast. And as you're turning, let's briefly review the setting of the book because that really does matter. As we review the setting, first of all, the genre of the book is historical narrative. It is historical narrative, meaning that these events really happened, big fish and all. And we know this for two particular reasons. First of all, the Old Testament places the prophet Jonah in history. In 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25, there's a very specific historical setting which indicates that this is not some fictional story with a fictional character. And second, it is backed up by Jesus himself who refers to the events of Jonah as history in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus said these words. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so you may say, all right, Chad, do you really expect me to believe that someone lived three days and three nights in the belly of the beast? And I would say, why is that so hard to believe? Why is that so hard to believe? Do you you believe that God created the universe? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Then why would it be so hard for him to preserve the life of someone for three days and three nights in the belly of the fish? That's nothing for God. He could do that with the snap of his fingers. So, the book of Jonah is historical narrative. It is classified as one of the minor prophets. One of the minor prophets. And when we say minor prophets, we're not saying that this is a lesser prophetic book, but simply that it's one of the shorter prophetic books. The book of Jonah is only 58 verses long. It's only 58 verses long. And you see, minor prophets are shorter in length than major prophets. But the truth is that there are major truths in the minor prophets. There are major truths in the Minor Prophets. And we're certainly discovering this in the book of Jonah, aren't we? We looked at seven truths from the tempest last week. We're going to review those in just a moment. Next, we need to consider the book's place and time. It's place and time. Jonah was a prophet in Israel, the northern kingdom, during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And this was a time period in which Israel was, was prospering. They were rich materially, and their borders had expanded to where they were during the reigns of David and Solomon. But... As was so often the case in Israel, they were poor spiritually. Rich materially, poor spiritually. Drifting very far from God. And lastly, for the setting, it is important to note that the dominant power at that time was who? The Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire. When we look at the map, we see just how small Israel and Judah were in comparison with this vast territory known as the Assyrian Empire. They were the power brokers of the day. And you can see that city Nineveh circled on the right-hand side of the screen, about 550 miles from Jerusalem. That was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And this is in what is now Iraq, the nation of Iraq. Now, We really need to understand, to get Jonah, the vicious nature of the Assyrians. These were a violent and terrible people. It was their practice after capturing their enemies to to cut off both of their legs and one arm 
but leaving one arm so that they could shake the victim's hand as he died. We were pure evil. We would say that an axis of terrorism. These were very violent people. And so you can imagine how the nation of Israel felt about the Assyrians and how they lived in constant fear and terror of them and would have even constant hatred toward them. Well, it was into this setting that God called the prophet Jonah. He called him to do a hard thing by faith, to leave Israel and to travel to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh and preach against it, to call them out and tell them just how evil they were and that they needed to repent. Either Jonah would fail in this hard thing that God had called him to do by faith and have his arms and arm, legs and arm cut off, or even worse, he might succeed. And then Israel's bitter enemies would repent and experience God's saving grace. And this was the first of the truths from the tempest last week that we identified, is that God calls his people to do hard things that require faith. God calls his people to do hard things that require faith. It was true for Jonah. It's true for us. If God hasn't called you to do something hard recently, I would submit to you it's either because you're not listening or you're not obeying. God calls his people to do hard things, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him wherever he leads, even if that means going to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. So he went down to Joppa, booked a ship to Tarshish, which was 2,500 miles in the opposite direction of where he was supposed to be going. And this was truth from the tempest number two, the devil will always provide a ship to Tarshish. He'll always provide what appears to be an easier way, a safer way, a more comfortable way, a, a happier way, but which is ultimately a disobedient and destructive way. As the repetition of the text emphasized, Jonah went down. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down into the inner part of the ship. And today, Jonah's downward spiral will reach its climax as he goes down literally to the very bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. This was truth from the tempest number three, the way to Tarshish is always down. The way to Tarshish is always down. Well, Jonah discovered that you can run from God, but you can't hide. And because God loved Jonah so much, he pursued him with a storm, a storm of such intensity that it threatened to break up the ship that Jonah was on. And um, it, it caused experienced sailors who had seen many storms. This storm was so different that they cried out to their gods. But what seemed so terrible in the moment was really an example of God's loving discipline in Jonah's life. It was meant to get his attention and to bring him back to the place where he belonged, which was truth from the tempest number four. Sometimes our storms are God's severe mercy. Sometimes our storms are God's severe mercy, where God will do absolutely whatever it is necessary to wake us up and bring us to our senses. Why? Because he loves us so very much. And to wake up is exactly what Jonah needed, because even during this tumultuous tempest, where was he? Asleep. Down in the inner part of the ship, which was truth from the tempest number five, the trip to Tarshish numbs our souls to sleep. The trip to Tarshish numbs our souls to sleep. How could Jonah sleep in the midst of a storm that was so intense it was going to break apart this ship? Because disobedience is exhausting. Disobedience is exhausting. And sin has a way of deadening us, of hardening us, and generally putting us in a spiritually sleepy state, dulling our spiritual senses. And so it was with Jonah. While the sailors and captain are, are praying desperately to their gods and they're acting by throwing the cargo overboard, the prophet of God is sleeping. 
Well, as the storm continues, the sailors decide that they should cast lots to determine on whose account they are in such danger, and the lot fell to Jonah. It was because of him and his sin that so many people were being adversely impacted, which was truth from the tempest number six. Our sin always produces collateral damage. Our sin always produces collateral damage. One of Satan's great lies is that our sin is individual and that any consequences of our disobedience will be limited only to us, nobody else, but that could not be further from the truth. As it was on the ship to Tarshish, so it is in our lives. Our sin imperils others. Well, reluctantly, the sailors reached the conclusion that their only hope of survival is to throw Jonah overboard. And wouldn't you know it, when they did, what happened? The sea immediately became calm. But what was good news for the sailors, the calm sea, was not good news for Jonah. Why? Because he sunk down, down, down into the depths of the sea. His life was in great peril until it says in 117, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, as horrible as it would be to be in the belly of the beast, and it was, it was absolutely better than drowning. The fact of the matter is that the fish functioned as Jonah's salvation, which was truth from the tempest number seven. We serve a God of second chances. We serve a God of second chances. It doesn't matter how many trips to Tarshish you've taken, or if you're on a ship to Tarshish right now, God is at work to bring you home So that is the review of the setting and the recap of chapter 1. Would you please stand with me as I read chapter 2 this morning? Jonah chapter 2, it's 10 verses long. It goes like this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, and I believe it has much to say to us today, and I pray that you would speak to us very personally through it. We thank you for salvation, and God, I pray that you'd make us people of great gratitude for all that you've done for us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in some circumstances. Oh, I misread it. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. That all circumstances is all-encompassing, and it includes even being in the belly of the beast. Can you imagine what that must have been like? 
to be in the belly of the... How many of you are a little claustrophobic? Um, last night, we were watching that movie, uh, 13 Lives. Have you seen that one? Um, it's about the boys playing soccer in Thailand who went exploring in the cave and the rains came and flooded the cave and all that was necessary to try to rescue them. And you had these rescue divers in these narrow channels in this cave and they can't, oh, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I can imagine being claustrophobic and in this circumstance, um, dark, no light, no source of light. Imagine the stench surrounded by all manner of decomposing fish, seaweed, and gastric juices. I just took care of your need for lunch. <laughs> in the, uh, the absence of airflow, which would have made it quite difficult to breathe, and yet in spite of all of this, what does Jonah do in chapter 2? He writes a prayer. And it's not the prayer that I would have expected. I would have expected in the belly of the beast, Jonah to be saying, God, get me out of here. It's not what he prays. The character of his prayer is noteworthy. It's not a cry of deliverance. Rather, Jonah's prayer here in Jonah chapter 2 is actually a psalm of thanksgiving. It's actually a psalm of thanksgiving, like something that you would read out of the book of Psalms. Quite literally. Now, why would I say that? Well, because psalms of thanksgiving, if you were to break down the psalms into their different literary types, one specific type is the psalm of thanksgiving, and it, it contains certain elements. A psalm of thanksgiving contains the elements of an introduction, um, a description of distress, a cry for help, an account of God's deliverance, and then it concludes with a vow of praise. And so you can later you know, go through the book of Psalms, find those Psalms of Thanksgiving, and consistently you will find this outline containing these elements. And guess what we have here in Jonah chapter 2? We have these very same elements. Verse 2 is the introduction. Verses 3 through 6a is the description of distress. Verse 7 is Jonah's cry for help. Verse 6b is the account of God's deliverance. And then finally, verses 8 through 9 are the vow of praise. And so Jonah chapter 2 checks all of the boxes of a psalm of thanksgiving. And you could say, all right, Chad, seriously, how on earth could Jonah write a psalm of thanksgiving while in the belly of the beast? In light of all that we just described. I mean, it's pitch black. He's got nothing to write with. He's got nothing to write on. He's got no paper, pen, phone, tablet, whatever. But what Jonah did have as a prophet of God was his knowledge of the Psalms. For all of Jonah's foibles and failures and shortcomings, he knew God's Word. He knew the Psalms, even having committed them to memory. And so what we find in Jonah 2 is something fascinating. Watch this. Every verse of Jonah's prayer, this Psalm of Thanksgiving, contains either a direct quote or a paraphrase from another psalm. Every verse of Jonah's prayer, the psalm of thanksgiving, contains either a direct quote or a paraphrase from another psalm. Check this out. This is so cool, okay? Um, verse 2, on the right-hand side, in yellow, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. On the left side, Psalm 120, verse 1, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. On the right, in orange, out of the belly of Sheol, Psalm 18, verse 5, in the orange, the cords of Sheol entangled me. And then in the green on the right, I cried and you heard my voice. On the left, I cried from, for help from his temple, he heard my voice. 
And this goes on and on. I had a slide for every verse in Jonah 2. I don't think we need to do that. You get the idea, and you can check that out on your own. Um, but the fact of the matter is, going ahead to that slide that sums it up all up again, every verse of Jonah's prayer, his psalm of thanksgiving, contains either a direct quote or paraphrase from another psalm. Now, I actually had um, an experience similar to this, you know, because again, he's in the belly of the beast, nothing to write with. He doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't have the Psalms in front of him. He just has memory. Um, as you know, I had some minor surgery a couple weeks ago on my elbow, and I'm sitting in that pre-op room, no phone, no Bible. All I had was whatever memory I had of the Psalms, right? And that's what I did. I was sitting there and kind of going through the Rolodex in my brain of some scripture I had memorized. And um, I, I think it's very similar to what was happening here with Jonah in the belly of the beast. And one of my favorite quotes about preaching is this. You're going to like this one. You've probably heard it before. Um, I milk a lot of cows, but I churn my own butter. You like that one, Bill? Yeah, Bill likes that one. Okay. Um, and I can so relate to that. What it, what it means is that, you know, uh, pastors, they study a lot. They, they, they read a lot of different commentaries, authors, and preachers. But at the end of the day, hopefully, prayerfully under the direction of the Holy Spirit, pastors churn their own butter with all of these other cows that they have milked. And that's what Jonah's doing here. He's going through this Rolodex of Psalms and verses, and he's putting together in his own mind this prayer. He's praying scripture, and he creates his own psalm of thanksgiving. And so let's methodically work our way through Jonah's psalm of thanksgiving, written in the belly of the beast from his memory of the Psalms. First of all, there is the element of introduction in verse 2. In the introduction, the psalmist gives indication of their intent to give thanks to God. The psalmist gives indication of their intent to give thanks to God. In verse 2, Jonah says, I, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, what is Sheol? That's not a word we use a lot, is it? It's a Hebrew term which refers to the realm of the dead, the place where departed souls would await judgment. And many in the Old Testament thought that Sheol was physically located in the lowest parts of the earth. Where is Jonah after getting thrown overboard? Literally, the lowest parts of the earth. And so he's saying, Sheol got to be close because there ain't much left in terms of the depths of the earth. Jonah's saying he was literally a death door. He was literally a death door, and he cried out to God, and God answered. And so really what we have here in verse 2, this indicates that Jonah chapter 2 is not Jonah's first prayer in his calamity, is it? When was the first prayer? Some point when he's sinking down, down, down in the sea, absolutely convinced that he is going to die, Jonah prayed. He cried out to God, and it says, he heard, God heard his voice. What we have here in Jonah 2 is Jonah's second prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving for God answering that first prayer. So, first prayer came in the sea as he was going down. Interesting, he didn't pray on the ship, did he? The captain prayed. All the sailors prayed, not the prophet of God. But Jonah did pray when he hit the water and began sinking down, down, down. And now he writes a prayer from the belly of the beast. Again, interestingly though, the character of the prayer is not God get me out of the beast. Rather, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Next element in the psalm is distress, is distress. In the distress part, the psalmist describes the seemingly hopeless situation they faced. The seemingly hopeless situation they faced. And that was certainly true for, for Jonah. Verse 3, Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. 
Interesting. Who cast Jonah into the deep? You know, from a human perspective, it was the sailors. But Jonah acknowledges that, God, you were behind this. You were the one who cast me into the sea. And that raises the question, and some people might say, what kind of God throws people into the sea? What kind of character is that? Well, it's the character of a God who loves his people so much that he will do whatever it takes to awaken them from their spiritual slumber. It's a God of severe mercy. And it is precisely because God is behind it all that Jonah is able to express hope. In verse 4, Jonah says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Things are looking really bad right now. I'm dropping like a rock to the bottom of the sea. But I know my God. I know my God. I know his character and his promises. That he is for me and not against me. And that he is at work for my good, even when it hurts. Even when it's severe mercy. You see, even in the midst of it, Jonah believes that God has plans for him. Plans to prosper him and not to harm him. Plans to give him a hope and a future. And that because of that, Jonah can say with confidence, I will one day look again upon your holy temple. Now that's perhaps literally in Jerusalem, physically, or perhaps it's figuratively in the very presence of God himself. He goes on to say in verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's very vivid, very poetic. This is it. This is rock bottom at the very roots of the mountains and down to the land whose bars closed over him forever. That, that word bar is interesting. It's a, it has a double meaning in Hebrew just as it does in English. Bars can refer to like iron bars which imprison a person and in this case would imprison them in Sheol, that place of the dead. Or bars can refer to like sandbars at the bottom of the sea. Either way, after going down, 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 Jonah has finally reached the bottom, which was the best possible place for Jonah to be, wasn't it? It's a hard truth. Sometimes the best place for us to be is rock bottom. Completely helpless and utterly dependent upon God for salvation. We had nowhere else to turn. Sometimes that's the best place for us to be. As Tim Keller says, it is only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and resources are broken and exhausted, that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. As is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Some of you have been there, haven't you? Some of you have been there. Unfortunately, it takes rock bottom for some of us to come to this place. I don't think it's a necessity that everyone has to reach rock bottom. I think we can come to this conclusion without reaching rock bottom, but some of us are harder learners than others, aren't we? This is exactly where Jonah found himself in his distress, which finally caused him to, the next element of the psalm is to cry for help in verse 7. In a cry for help, the psalmist recounts how they sought the Lord in their time of need how they sought the Lord in their time of need. Verse 7, in the cry for help, Jonah says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you 
into your holy temple. And it says, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you. Jonah is crying out for salvation, for rescue. Jonah finally came to the end of himself. And in his desperation, he cried out to the only one who could help. It reminds me a lot of the prodigal son. Jonah came to his senses. Jonah woke up. And he remembered the goodness of his heavenly father, much as the prodigal son remembered the goodness of his father. And like the prodigal son, Jonah reasoned, why perish needlessly on the bottom of the sea when I could be living abundantly in the care of God? That might be a good question for some of you today. It is my prayer that some of you today will reach that same point of desperation. And that as you remember the goodness of your heavenly father, that you will cry out to him as Jonah did. Because the next element in the psalm of thanksgiving is the, the account of God's deliverance. The account of God's deliverance, where the psalmist recounts how God intervened and rescued them. How God intervened and rescued them. Look at the second half of verse 6, where it says, Yet you brought up, opposite of down, 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 God brought him up from the pit. O Lord, my God. The same God who hurled Jonah into the sea brought him out, brought him up. And Jonah discovered that no matter how far he ran from the presence of God, no matter how far down, down, down he descended, he was not beyond the reach of God's grace. Isn't that good news? I mean, Jonah ran about as far and as down as one can go in an attempt to escape the presence of God and God's direction for his life, and yet he couldn't outrun God's grace. Commentator Eric Redmond said it this way. He says, is there anyone too sinful for God? How deep does God's mercy go? God's mercy will go down to the sandbars and the ocean for a rebellious prophet who deserved to die. And God's grace will do the same for you. His grace is greater than our sin. And as it says in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was true in Jonah's experience. It can be true in yours as well. Well, next in Jonah's Psalm of Thanksgiving is the vow of praise. The vow of praise. In light of God's deliverance, the psalmist proclaims their dedication to obedience. In light of God's deliverance, the psalmist proclaims their dedication to obedience. Now, the point of this is that talk is cheap, and increasingly so in our culture. People say all kinds of things. Do they mean them? It's important to say thank you, and we should. But how much more important it is to show gratitude, to live gratitude, to put gratitude into action, gratitude that costs us something. For that is when we know that a person is truly thankful. And so Jonah writes in verse 8, those who regard, pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Think with me for a minute. Where would Jonah have had first-hand experience with vain idols? Well, first of all, idolatry was Israel's most prevalent sin. All right, This was a nation continually beset with the sin of idolatry. They were constantly inventing other gods to worship or chasing after the gods of other nations. That's what a lot of the, the prophets of that time were preaching out against is their idolatry. But truth be known, we have our own idols, don't we? They may not be little statues, but we have our things are things that we chase after in an effort to give our lives security and meaning, or those things that we devote our time, talent, and treasure to that even eclipse our time, talent, and treasure stewardship for God. We have our idols too. 
And one day, any idolatry in our life will be exposed for the vanity that it is. Well, Jonah also had firsthand experience with vain idols on the ship to Tarshish, right? Do you remember as the pagan sailors, as they were terrified, they cried out to their gods, to their idols for help, but no help came, but no help came. And so when Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, I'm sure that both of these examples of idolatry were fresh in his mind. So in contrast to this, Jonah goes on to say in verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. All of the idolatry, even Jonah's own idolatry, has now been stripped away and there is this intentional focus on the one true living God. But interestingly, do you remember what the pagan sailors did in chapter 1 when they experienced salvation from Yahweh from the storm? What did they do in chapter 1? Jonah 1.16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Again, talk is cheap. Faith is made visible by action as demonstrated by the sailors and now by Jonah. Well, what vows do you think Jonah made to the Lord? Hard to tell, but I believe that first and foremost, what do you think Jonah vowed? Yep, I'm going to Nineveh. I'm going to follow through in obedience to God's call to do this hard thing. Even if it means getting my arms and legs cut off, Better to have my arms and legs cut off, but be in the presence of God and in His hand than to be running away and to be alone. And even if I succeed, well, that's another story that we'll get to in the chapters to come. Here, Jonah literally repents. What does repent literally mean? Change direction. Change direction. Look at the map. He was going to Tarshish. Now he's turned around with the help from the fish. And now he's headed to Nineveh. That's what repentance is. Church, we're really good at confessing sin. We're not so good at repentance. It's a big difference. Confession is necessary. Confession is important. But confession is like the first step. We tend to eliminate or excuse or skip the next step, which is repentance, the turning of direction. Not Jonah. Jonah literally goes in the opposite direction of his sin. And it was at this point when Jonah makes this vow of obedience, demonstrating that he was fully surrendered to God, finally in verse 10 it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Finally, after Jonah's figurative death, burial, and resurrection, he's at the place where God can use him. I think that's this process of death, burial, and resurrection, all of us have to experience it. I think the question is, how hard is it going to be? Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. If Christ is going to live in you, you have to die. You have to be spiritually crucified in order for resurrection to take place. Again, just like with the repentance piece that we want to skip, I think we tend to want to skip the crucifixion piece as well. We must surrender all that we have, all that we are to God, to lay it all on the altar, all nailed to the cross, so that we can die, that he may live in us. That's what happened with Jonah here. And again, the question is, how painful is it going to be for you? Are you going to fight it like Jonah? And have to literally come to the very depths of the sea? Or 
In your will right now, are you able to say, God, it's yours. I lay it all on the altar. Jonah's finally at the place where God can use him. Are you at that place? Because God can't really use you to your full fruitfulness until you have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. That place of full surrender, that place of thanksgiving for God's amazing grace, which brought about Jonah's salvation from the depths of the sea. So that is Jonah's psalm, his prayer of thanksgiving, containing those common elements of introduction, distress, cry for help, God's deliverance, and vow of praise. Let's, let's talk now about application and answer that question, how should we then live? By the way, is there like something from Sarah on the bottom of your notes? I just heard about it. I didn't see it yet. I'll talk to her about that later. <laughs> I have three short, pithy words of exhortation for you this morning in regard to application. And the first of these is this, give up. Give up. Now, that's not something we hear in our culture, right? They always say, don't give up. You know, no, spiritually speaking, in God's economy, give up. The spiritual term would be surrender. I'm no lifeguard. I can barely swim. But it is my understanding that, I probably need the lifeguard from time to time, but when a swimmer is in distress and the lifeguard goes out to help, the lifeguard is to wait for the swimmer to stop thrashing about. Why? Well, because all that thrashing puts the lifeguard in danger. They could get conked on the head, and now you got two swimmers in distress. But once the swimmer gives up and stops thrashing about, the lifeguard is then able to help to save them from their distress. And that same truth applies to us today spiritually. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still. Another translation says, cease striving and know that I am God. Stop thrashing about like Jonah was for so long and surrender the way that Jonah finally did. And again, you can do it the easy way or you can do it the Jonah way. Bottom line, at some point, you've got to give up just as Jonah finally did. And it is then that God will intervene and bring salvation, deliverance, and fruitfulness and all that he intends for you is you are crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but now Christ lives through you. Commentator Peter C. Craigie said it this way. He said, but not until Jonah was all the way down, finally stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency. I love that phrase. His own buoyant self-sufficiency was deliverance possible. It wasn't until he stopped thrashing that God could bring salvation. And that very well may describe some thrashers here this morning. My word for you today, give up. Next, look up. Look up. Just as Jesus said in Luke 21, 28, he said, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Look up to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We have a vivid example of this in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. It's this crazy story where the Israelites, they're wandering in the wilderness and doing what Israelites do. They're grumbling. They're grumbling about how God isn't doing this, God isn't doing that, Moses doing this, not doing that. They're ready to go back to Egypt. Their eyes were fixed on their circumstances rather than on God. They're, they're navel-gazing instead of looking up. And so we read in Numbers 21, verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. I hate snakes. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. When you stop navel-gazing, stop focusing on yourself and your circumstances, everything that's wrong, everything you don't have, but put your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus made this application by saying in John 3.14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. What are you looking at this morning? Are you looking at the ground? Are you looking at your belly? Are you looking at your circumstances? You're all negative and depressed and grumbling about this, that, and the other. No matter where you find yourself today, no matter the circumstance, even if it's seemingly hopeless as it was with Jonah, look up. Look to Jesus. He alone can save. Next, show up. Show up meaning put your faith into action. Boy, the book of James is brutally honest. Faith without works is dead. You have all the right doctrine. You have all the right thoughts about who God is. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You can have the best doctrine in the world and go to hell because that's not what saving faith is all about. It's good to have good doctrine But at the end of the day, we must put our faith into action. If it's real faith, if it's true faith, if it's genuine, if it's authentic, our faith will be demonstrated in repentance and obedience. The sailors demonstrated the authenticity of their faith. They made sacrifices to God and made vows. And again, I think it's entirely possible we're going to see some of these sailors from Jonah's ship in heaven. Because God revealed himself to them and they recognized, oh, he is the one true living God. And we surrender ourselves to him. Jonah here does the same. What does that mean for us? Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, God isn't interested in us sacrificing animals the way that they did in the Old Testament. He is not interested in dead sacrifices. What he is interested in is a living sacrifice, our lives, fully devoted to him and whatever he calls us to do, even if he calls us to go to Nineveh. So my question to you, have you given up? Have you looked up? And have you shown up? This is the path connecting it back to our sermon series of the abundant life, the fullness of life. This is the path to the abundant, fruitful, victorious life that God intends for each one of his children. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, may we be more than hearers of the word this morning. May we be doers. I thank you for the example of the the pagan sailors. I thank you for the example of Jonah. You said it's not enough to say it. It is required that we actually do something with this. God, what is it that you would have us to do? What is it that you would have us to do in response to this? May we not just simply walk away and go on with life saying, hey, we went to church today, we sang, we heard a sermon, but nothing's really different. God, make us different. God, I pray for those who are thrashing about this morning and you are circling and you're ready to rescue, but you're waiting. You're waiting for them to cease striving, to be still and to know that you are God. God, I pray that someone would give up this morning. I pray that someone would surrender to you this morning and say, you know what, I've done, I'm exhausted I've been doing this for so long on my own and it's, it's, I'm failing miserably. I'm tired. I'm done. God, may someone give up this morning.
And God, for all of us, God, eliminate our navel-gazing, our grumbling, our complaining. And God, may we get busy about looking up and doing your work. Forgive us for being as negative as the world is negative. You have marvelously saved us. And may we follow Jonah's example and be those who, who respond with prayers of thanksgiving, gratitude for all that you've done for us. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,